All right, let's get started with our Life in the Law segment for this week. I'm doing it solo this week, but I do have a really awesome guest that's going to be able to sit down and talk with us about the law school experience and also a little bit about reparations. That's right. Hashtag pay me what you owe me. Um, <laughs> we have uh, Professor Justin Hansford here, who is a professor at Howard Law School, a critical race theorist, an activist, and also the executive director of the Thurgood Marshall Center for Civil Rights. So you just have all the titles kind of going <laughs> on right now. Um, but welcome. Thank you for coming. All right. Glad to be here. So let's just start a little bit by talking about your experiences in law school. Um, how many years out are you, actually? Man, do I have to say that on the podcast? Ah, <laughs> if, you, if you're uncomfortable, that's no, no, it's, but... it's, it's ten, <laughs> 10 years out, man. Yeah. 10 years out. But an executive director of an organization. So, I mean, look. That's right. Goals. Goals, yep. I could not have predicted that I'd be a law professor, yeah. uh, executive director of a center. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been blessed, and it's been a very unconventional journey. Mm. I'll say that. I never would have uh, predicted it. So tell me about your experience in law school, why you went to law school, and do you feel like you got what you expected out of the experience? So I, as a, a teenager, I admired... Malcolm X, I admired Marcus Garvey. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like these guys. I went to law school not because I'm someone who always wanted to be a lawyer since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I went basically because I really enjoyed the LSAT. It sounds crazy. What? <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Wait, I enjoyed wait, wait. The, the logic games. What? I enjoyed the... I've never heard of it. <laughs> I, was an, I was an English major, and I loved okay. reading, so I enjoyed the reading comprehension part. I majored in... African-American studies and English mm -hmm. at Howard University. So I read James Baldwin. James Baldwin was my hero. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I read uh, all the black literature I could. And so I applied those skills to the LSAT. I got a good score. And I say, you know, this is, is better than going out into the real world. So True. <laughs> and, you know, I also, I also read Johnny Cochran's autobiography. So I, I was aware of the possibility of being a litigator. Mm -hmm. But I really just wanted the experience. I thought it would be fun. And this is, I may be the only person to say this on your podcast ever, mm -hmm. but law school was was fun for me. It was, I had a great time. Now, let me tell you why I had a great time. I'm, I'm confused. All right. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah, go ahead. So when I entered law school, I entered, I went to Georgetown Law Center and they have a special curriculum that introduces you to key concepts in the law. Okay. It's uh, the, the curriculum is called Section 3. Okay. And uh, as part of this Section 3 curriculum, they taught critical race theory in my first semester of law school. Wow, dope. So for me, as someone who was already here for the cause, it was a game changer. Right. Because during the first couple of weeks of law school, it was boring. It was hard. <laughs> For me, the first couple of years, but right. go ahead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then after that, I realized, like, yo, every, every single subject in law school, I can look at it from the perspective of how can I use this to help the black struggle? Gotcha. And it could be a tort situation where I'm learning how to do a civil rights claim in, in, in civil court. It can be criminal justice. It can be constitutional law where you're learning about the 14th Amendment. It can mm -hmm. be property where, of course, we know property law itself is based on enslavement. Right. And uh, Professor Cheryl Harris, a critical race theorist, 
who I admire, taught us that whiteness is a form of property itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, every topic that you cover in law school, you can look at it from a critical race perspective. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's what I needed to keep my head in the game so that I didn't just have my eyes glazing over yeah. and falling asleep in class. Yeah. Um, and it came just in time for me. So uh, we, we started to have reading groups. We would read critical race theory articles mm-hmm. um, as one else in our friends' apartments, in the dorms. Um, during my second year, we formed a student organization mm-hmm. focused on critical race theory. We started to advocate and protest for an, a law journal to be created at our law school focusing just on critical race theory. Mm-hmm. So I ended up being one of the central people helping to organize that. Uh, we put together a proposal. Uh, our proposal was rejected the second year, so we had to redo our proposal. Mm-hmm. So my entire law school experience was one of protest and uh, struggle and engagement with critical race theory and those ideas and those concepts and that movement. Mm-hmm. So for me, I saw everything through that lens. I tell a lot of my students now, if you want to enjoy law school, mm-hmm. don't take any of the advice <laughs> that they, mm-hmm. they they normally give you. Oh, yeah. The, no, the, <laughs> yeah. No, the normal advice is take these bar courses, you know, right. take corporations. Black and, and yeah, know, corporate law. And evidence, um, you know, Just focus on your grades. Don't do any extracurriculars, uh, yada, yada, yada. All that is bunk. For for me, the best thing I could have done was to emerge myself in critical race theory. The way that worked out for me, I started taking classes Mm -hmm. that uh, were critical race theory classes. I started uh, having relationships with professors who knew me based on my activism. Mm -hmm. So I had one professor enroll me in an independent study, independent research course, mm-hmm. where it was just me and him. Wow. I did an after-school program where I used hip-hop to teach English language skills and critical reading skills to yep. middle schoolers. Mm-hmm. And um, we would take the rhymes that they might have heard from a song on the radio. Maybe it's Lil Wayne. Maybe it's Drake at the time. Yeah. And uh, we'd print those rhymes out. And we'd force them to identify the alliteration, and we'd force them to think hard about what the message is in this song. Yeah. Of course, I'd sprinkle in some most deaf or rascast or something more conscious yeah. from time to time. But um, here's a prof- there's a professor teaching education in the law mm-hmm. who was also a critical race theorist who said, you know what? All you need to do is take your class and do some reflection on your after-school program mingle some critical race theory concepts into that yeah and you can be my independent research student and we'll and i'll give you a grade for that that'll be that works so you know a finesse truly (laughs) right so um and we're not going to talk about tyrone i know that's something (laughs) keep for for later but finesse is in the air at at howard law school right now where i'm at but but anyway back to the story um so that sort of experience helped me to make it through law school and stay excited about it. Because mm-hmm. it's one thing just to make it through. It's another thing to use it as a tool for what I wanted to do. I had my own vision right. of how I wanted to make the world a better place. And law school was just another tool in my repertoire. It wasn't something where I was going to be put into somebody else's world, mm-hmm. living by somebody else's rules, trying to meet goals that somebody else had set for me. Because right. oftentimes there are people who come into law school they want to do something involving social justice 
when they enter. By the time they leave, they're talking about which big firm they're going to go right. to. And at some point in time, over those intervening three years, somebody got into their head. And and there, there are other considerations that do uh, occur. I understand that people have student loan debt, uh, as I do. Real. <laughs> so there's some real things that are uh, in, in the mix. Mm-hmm. But um, from the beginning, I had a vision and I was blessed because I found other people that helped me to stay focused on that vision. Mm-hmm. And I used law, the law school experience as a way to bolster my particular vision. And it worked out um, in another way. I think because I took classes I enjoyed, I ended up getting pretty good grades. Right, you know, right. So, so the, the ability and opportunity to become an academic and a law professor um, really grew out of my willingness to not take corporations or evidence and instead take critical race theory, mm-hmm. <laughs> section two and section three, you know, taking yeah. it multiple times and um, succeeding in those courses. I mean, shout out to the fact that Georgetown has that many options for right. you to be able to even do critical race theory. I mean, I remember coming here, my property professor for my first year also was the person who taught critical race theory, uh, Professor Ken Mack. Oh, yeah. And so I was really excited. I'm like, you know, I'm going to you know, take a reading group with him and then eighth property. And then second year, I'll be able to take critical race theory with him. And then I'll have my rec letter complete mm. and everything will be fine. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Come to find out, my second year here, he ends up taking a sabbatical, mm, and so no critical mm-hmm. race theory available. Only had one there. guy teaching it, yeah, because one person was teaching it. So yeah. they brought in another professor, uh, Professor Kiara Bridges, mm-hmm. who's also a really prolific anthropologist out here in Boston. Uh, she came to visit and taught critical race theory, but then I got waitlisted, mm. and I didn't get off the you waitlist. Only, you only had one chance. So, so I'm mad that I came to law school really hoping to do critical race theory and not being able to do it, at least in the more formal setting, mm-hmm. right? Like in, in the same way that you were able to do it outside of the classroom, right. so too did I do it through political education, through organizing work outside right. of the classroom, um, which I think is still obviously very meaningful and has helped me uh, to think about my legal education and my legal career in very different ways. Yeah. Um, and, and so in the way that you've described kind of a unorthodox or at least not the most traditional legal education experience, Mm -hmm. so too is your professional experience after graduating from law school. So tell us a little bit about that. That's right. Well, when I came out of law school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I had uh, three options. I was either going to uh, completely leave the law by becoming the head of an after-school program for black boys in New cool. York City. Mm-hmm. I w- or I, and my second option was to do a clerkship, but not on the federal court, but on a local uh, state court mm-hmm. in the Virgin Islands. Oh, all right. <laughs> Which is unorthodox. Pretty, very unorthodox. So yeah. my, third, my third option was to work with a charter school company and which is a, a company called Imagine Schools, it's sort of like KIPP, right, national, yep. a national charter school company, and help them open charter schools in in Washington D.C., focusing on um, underserved populations. And I'm a Washington D.C. native. I was mm-hmm. born in the city, so for me, it was an opportunity to be at home right. and to contribute to uh, something which I thought was a, a positive program. And it allowed me to keep my foot in both worlds. So I was able to be the legal advisor okay. for this charter school program. 
and I was able to be on the ground helping to organize parents mm-hmm. and set the, set up the vision for the institution. Uh, so I, I felt like I was able to sort of straddle both worlds. I knew at that time that if I completely left the law, people told me that I'd never be able to get back into it. Right, I've heard that yeah. too, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to completely leave it. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made because it ended up being um, – uh, a job that I would only have for a short period of time, less than a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hated it. <laughs> I hated oh, the job. Oh. <laughs> just trying to put it nicely. Yeah. Would and it be because of charter school th- themselves or just the administration? Very, it's or... a very corporate environment. Yeah. And at the time, I wasn't aware of all the dynamics and politics around the charter debate. Yeah. It got, and... real, it got real messy. Real messy. <laughs> it got yeah. messy, especially at the time in Washington, D.C. Michelle Ree was there. They were trying to push uh, an aggressive charter school development process and uh, I just I, I didn't feel like that was what I wanted to do for a large chunk of my life mm-hmm. I went and it's very interesting actually and um, uh, you know as about a week from today it'll be the uh, I think the 50th anniversary or the 60th anniversary of the assassinations of Martin Luther King mm. uh, April 4th um, it was in the 1960s. So yeah. probably 50, yeah. 50th anniversary. Wow. Um, and this experience um, at the charter school pretty much ended for for me on the 40th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2008, uh, we had put together a symposium um, on Martin Luther King's legacy. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time, I was working at the charter school. And I went back and, man, I sat next to Charles Lawrence, who's a great critical race theorist, who's yeah. one of my heroes. And um, we would start talking about Martin Luther King and the beloved community and race and social justice and law. Previously, for the pre- previous six months, I had been in this corporate environment. Yeah. You know, we're talking about X's and O's and the bottom line. And, you know, every once in a while I'd see the kids, which was fun. But it wasn't into, it wasn't an intellectual challenge. Right. And it wasn't what I was passionate about from an, an, a theoretical perspective. I had all these ideas from law school, critical race theory and, um, you know, third world approaches to international law and, and uh you know, all these different things I had studied and my brain was hungry for that. Yeah. So when I went back to to uh, Georgetown for that symposium, I said, you know what? I want to find a way to get back in here, to get back into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so that was the moment when I decided I wanted to, wanted to become a law professor and I was going to do whatever it took to get to that place. And people told me, well, you got to find a way to do a, a federal clerkship because that's a huge mm-hmm. asset. And um, I ended up with a clerkship on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, Judge Damon Keith. Mm. A big turning point, probably the biggest turning point in my entire career was getting that position from Judge Damon Keith. Wow. Well, he's uh, 90, over 95 years old right now, he's, and he's still working full yeah. days. He's uh, the preeminent black federal jurist um, in the country, if you ask me. Yeah. And he was the judge. Mm-hmm. That um, also mentored Lonnie Guineer, who was one of his law clerks. Oh yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. The, he has a long list of uh, famous people who he uh, was a was a mentor to. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Granholm, uh, governor of Michigan, former governor of Michigan. Mm-hmm. So uh, he took me on, and that changed everything. After that, um, I found my way. I worked for 
uh, Obama for America in that first political campaign. Oh, word. So, uh-huh. you know, that that was a huge, yeah. a huge adrenaline boost because in 2008, um, we didn't know anything about what was going to happen politically, but right. this was the first black president. So we were about to make it. We were, yeah, about yeah, to, yeah. we were about to do this thing. So, yeah. you know, I'd go out there and knock on doors and people would be like, what do you want? I was, I was in um, Cleveland mm-hmm. in Ohio. And sometimes we go out and knock on doors and some of these people would be like, what do you want? And I'd say, you know, I'm here for uh, Obama. I'm trying to elect the first black president, you know, you're in, in the heart of Cleveland. Yeah. Like, oh, come on in. You know, let me get you a plate of greens and chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you can be, a, yeah. you can be like a celebrity just working for the guy. Yeah. Um, so I did that. Then I, then I worked for Judge Keith, you know, stepping in high cotton, man. And then after that, I went in uh, into the teaching market and um, found myself employed about a year and a half. It's kind of happened. It's like, wait, I'm I'm employed. I didn't ex- I didn't expect to get the job. I mm-hmm. I was volunteering at the White House. Actually, I was doing some um, some vetting of some resumes, mm-hmm. uh, staying at my mother's house, and just trying to figure out a way to get into the industry of of the, of the law professorate. Right. And I was in a fellowship program where they said, okay, we'll we'll help you. Prepare your job talk. Ken Mack actually helped me to prepare my oh, job talk. Came awesome. to Georgetown that semester and helped me. Mm-hmm. And before um, you like work on writing and yep. just like kind of develop your like a curriculum and all that type of stuff to be able to go on the market. That's right. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. you you prepare for your interviews, mm-hmm. and in those interviews, what you do is you talk about one of your law review articles. I had written about Marcus Garvey mm-hmm. um, and his mail fraud uh, trial, which was a, a setup by right. J. Edgar Hoover. So, you know, I extended that to like an 80, 90 page article, actually became a book. And Mm -hmm. so uh, I talked about Marcus Garvey and, you know, it's, you know, some people would think, well, you know, you're a a black guy, you know, you're writing about Marcus Garvey and doing all this pro-black stuff. What are the odds that this will turn into something like a law professorate position? Yeah. But uh, it worked out, man. It worked out. I had a lot of support from people who are passionate about race and social justice and I found myself with a job in St. Louis, Missouri in 2011. Mm-hmm. And uh, that started my career as a law professor. And so you moved from St. Louis to then teach at Georgetown, right? Was that immediately the next step? That was that was five years later. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so for the first five years, I was in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Ferguson happened. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I lived about 10 minutes from Ferguson. Mm-hmm. I got involved uh, representing protesters, representing Mike Brown's family uh, at the United Nations. Yep, yep. Did all that stuff. And then I ended up at Georgetown. Uh, and so it was sort of a funny situation. Uh, to make a long story short, some people in St. Louis were very upset with me for hmm. supporting Mike Brown. They said I was taking Mike Brown's side. I was supposed to be neutral as a professor. Oh, right? well. So, <laughs> so um, you know, I was I was put into a position where there's a lot of pressure on me to to uh, shape up or ship out, so to speak. Yeah. And I wasn't about to shape up in in that sense. It was like exile. Oh what yeah. Me then. Oh boy, man. They they want oh. they, they try to put me on unpaid leave for a year with no health care. So it was the law school itself that was... Yeah, the dean of the law school came for me. And I started reaching out for other opportunities. And um, just as they're trying to really give me the boot, this was Mm pre-tenure. So I had done all this protesting and I got arrested and all these things Mm pre-tenure. So I was still at people's mercy. And um, 
you know, so I'm I'm going through this process and it's like, dang, you know, I might I might have been just asked out, man. Right. <laughs> situation. Might have been too litty, might have been popping off a little too much. <laughs> a little too much. Yeah. But then, you know, I got an opportunity, you know, I, I reached out to Georgetown, my alma mater. They say, yo, you can come here and teach Black Lives Matter in the law. Wow. And critical race theory. But Georgetown is just like They just held me down, man. What? Yeah. They, right. and, and, but then then I also reached out to uh, Harvard, the, the Charles Hamilton Houston Center. Mm-hmm. They worked to help me get a, a fellowship uh, here um, at the, the Center for American Studies uh, focused on some of the work I did in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a semester here at Harvard and a semester at Georgetown. And it's yep. funny the way life works, man, because people were coming for you trying to take you out in St. Louis and you know, you end up at Harvard right. and Georgetown. Right. And then from that, I ended up back at Howard, uh, where, I, where it all started for me, you know? Yeah. So um, it's. They didn't push you out, they pushed you up. That, a lot hey, of man. Ways. So we're, we're, bump, we're bumping fists for those out there in. Uh, <laughs> you can <laughs> hear it, land. probably. Yeah. You can feel it, even if you can't hear it. Right. Um, and so now you're at Howard, and this was a pretty um, recent move uh, right. to work at Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tell us a little bit about what you're doing there now. So you're teaching, and you're also running the Center on Civil Rights. How did that uh, come to be about? Man, it's a dream job, man. It sounds me. like it. it. Is. <laughs> it's I already, <laughs> I've been giving you grief. I don't know if you saw it on Facebook. I was like, so you're going to put out fellowship applications right after I get a job offer and oh. accept it? Because it could have just worked out. Oh, but it's all good. Man, man. We'd love to have you if you if you change your mind. All right. You're on You're on the record. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have you apply, is what I should say. But uh, please do. Please do. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a dream job, man. I what I'm doing is um, I'm running a center. We're calling it the Thurgood Marshall Center for Civil Rights. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially what I'm trying to do is take the energy from Ferguson, from the Ferguson protesters, and bring that to Howard University in, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And really explore this question of what can we do as lawyers to support movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so... We have a, th- a three-pronged approach. We've got a intellectual mission, an advocacy mission, and a community mission that we're all we're trying to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the intellectual mission is going to be operated through our human and civil rights law review, okay. which I'm the I'm the advisor for. Um, our advocacy mission will be operated through our human and civil rights law clinic, Dope. which I'm the, di- the director of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have a uh, community engagement project where we're, we're going to be starting a YouTube channel. We're going to be active on Instagram. We're going to go out into high schools. We're going to knock on doors. We're going to make sure the message of racial justice is is sent all over the Washington, D.C. community and all over the country and all over the world. And so it's it's a it's a huge uh, project. We're going to engage both the main campus and the law school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's I mean it's one of the most exciting things I've ever been involved in my in my life, man. And it's and it's a chance to really uh, take the vision of what a, a Thurgood Marshall would do in 2018. Yeah, we know what the Charles Houston's of the worlds and and the, and the Thurgood Marshalls of the world did 100 years ago. Right. What would they do today in this context where our Supreme Court is so <laughs> so. Uh, I'm lost. I'm lost for words to describe it. Yeah, it's hard to make an argument that we should take the approach of trying to build up a litigation strategy that will result in some sort of huge Supreme Court victory. 
right. when the people on that court are are so regressive, especially five of them, just to be clear about it. So mm-hmm. we're looking at approaches that go beyond the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And it, it's particularly close to my heart because when I was in Ferguson, uh, I was uh, a law professor, but I was a member of the Maryland Bar. I took the bar uh, right after I graduated um, from Georgetown in D.C., at, and I was only admitted to the Maryland Bar. So I found myself out there with the Ferguson protesters. We're marching. We're chanting. We're getting tear gas. Right. And people were like, wait a minute. You're a lawyer? You're a law professor? What like, are you doing? What are you do- <laughs> <laughs> right. You need to help us. You know, you, 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 yeah. you, you're not just a regular person who can just go and march without using those other skills as well. Yeah. Um, so what's how are you going to use those skills? And I'm like... You know, I want to help you and I want to do whatever I can, but I'm not a member of the Missouri Bar. Not a member of the, you know, Ferguson, St. Louis, Missouri Bar yeah. um, is not going to admit me because I wasn't a, I wasn't a bar member for the period of time which would allow me to wave in uh, very, very often. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to find other ways to help. And that in some cases meant doing after school programming and doing know your rights sessions for mm-hmm. Ferguson people. So they would know what to do when they were stopped by the police, which happened all the time, as we saw in the Ferguson report. Sometimes it meant helping uh, to concoct policy options and and helping to draft possible laws, which you could submit to activist groups. Sometimes it meant helping to strategize around human rights projects. Mm -hmm. So the work we did at the United Nations with Mike Brown's family was uh, something that you don't need a bar license to do. That's something you do need to have legal experience to do. To, to draft a shadow report and to submit it to the United Nations and raise money and go to Geneva and make this argument before the United Nations uh, Convention Against Torture. Mm-hmm. That took legal skills, but it didn't take a bar license. Uh, so, so there are a list of things that you can do outside of the courtroom to help create social change. Yeah. And so I'm especially interested in pursuing those types of projects in the D.C. area and doing so ultimately on a national and international platform. I think that the center also represents your methodology when it comes to racial justice as being not just a civil rights issue, but a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. So during your talk earlier today, and, and folks, you can actually go take a look at the recording of that talk on the Harvard Journal on Racial and Ethnic Justice's Facebook page. During that talk, you mentioned the idea of reparations in an international context. And, you know, some of the things you've mentioned already fit into that framework in terms of the ways that UN and other human rights bodies have looked at the issues related specifically to African uh, communities and to people of African descent. Uh, This is actually in part related to the UN's decade on People of what African descent, yeah. <laughs> the, the UN's International Decade yep. for People of African Descent. That's right. Um, That's right. And so thank you for coming to talk with us about that. Mm-hmm. And during the talk, you kind of help us to understand the fact that because the courts are like this and because the way that the law operates in America, mm-hmm. civil rights aren't the only option for racial justice. We can actually appeal to a larger body, yeah. that being the international <laughs> courts, human rights um, organizations, and that also kind of explains why you went to the UN in defense of folks from Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about how you see racial justice as a human rights issue. Right. Well, it comes out of my admiration for Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. As we know, towards the end of his his life, his hope was to, to move from a civil rights to a human rights framework for mm-hmm. the black struggle. He said, how are we going to be able to take our case before the United Nations 
and be part of this global community. And I mean, his as usual, Malcolm's argument was practical and it made sense. Why would you apply and plead and beg for justice, hoping that the same people who are oppressing you will also save you? Right. And in Ferguson, it was especially clear that Ferguson city officials were not having any of this racial justice stuff. It, that mm-hmm. could include the Ferguson prosecutor, Rob McCullough. It would include the Ferguson uh, police chief at the time um, who... You know, was, I mean, these these were characters who were almost out of you know Mississippi in the 1930s. You know, mm. so for us to th- to wait around and hope for justice from them, it seemed foolish from the get go. And the opportunity to go abroad and find another place to plead your case before the global community, where they might actually be neutral, mm-hmm. uh, was something that was an irreplaceable opportunity. And it just so happened that I happened to be uh, teaching human rights law. And I happened to have some connections uh, with people like Mina Jagannath, who was uh, a human rights lawyer, mm-hmm. the U.S. Human Rights Network. So I happened, I happened to know these people. We were put in contact, and we put together a shadow report, and we wrote, uh, raised the money online, and we were able to make it happen. And, you know, it, it was something that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I look back on my career, and it's, it's the highlight of my career. Yeah. Because it's one moment where all the study of the theories and, you know, reading— things in these textbooks and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, write these articles. This is one time when it actually made a difference in the lives of people that I really cared about, black people in Ferguson, mm-hmm. because they, they saw that their protests weren't, not, weren't just being heard nationally. People had a voice on the global platform. And I'll never forget, you know, we went out there with uh, Mike Brown's mother, um, also with Ferguson protesters, Tef Poe went with us, uh, Tara uh, Thompson, a number of protesters. And uh, but I'll never forget Mike Brown's mother. You know, we we uh, worked on her testimony. Just you know, just like any other time when you're representing someone, you have to go over the the client's testimony if yeah, they're going to if they're going to uh, yeah if they're going to go before the tribunal. And uh, we went over her testimony, and she's having to describe what it's like to uh, see her son laying there on the street for hours and she can't um, go there and tend to him. He's just baking in the hot sun and she's out there for those entire, you know, four hours. Right. And uh, she's talking about um, her experiences and the pain she felt. And, you know, we, we cried during the preparation and, and, and when she gave her testimony, um, you know, the, there wasn't a dry eye, dry eye in the house yeah. when she finished because uh, she was able to express that pain that she felt as a mother. People from all over the world, you know, they had their headphones, headsets in, mm-hmm. you know, they were listening in different languages, uh, but they could still feel her, her energy and they still understood her message and it resonated with them. And uh, one of the greatest moments that I've ever had is when at the end of the experience, the uh, committee issued its its final concluding uh, recommendations, and they said, yes, this was a human rights violation that took place. Wow. Yes, this was something that you deserve some sort of recompense for. Mm-hmm. And uh, it felt like uh, we finally had the recognition. We finally were given the dignity that we had sought for so long. 
in the United States. And it's, it's a shame we had to go all the way to Geneva, Switzerland to do that. To do, right. to do that. But, um, you know, that's something that um, made a difference, I think, to her. Mm-hmm. And it made a difference to me. I think it, it helped to make a difference to people around the world in the, in, in, in the sense of the way they saw the issue, not as a, a local issue, not as even a national issue, but as a global issue. Right. Where um, everybody had a stake in that. If it's, if it's a question of domestic politics in, in the United States, people who are outside of the United States can't, can't tell anybody what's constitutional or not. They can't tell people how they should relate to other Americans. That's not their business. Human rights is everybody's business. Right. If you're Brazilian, if you're South African, if you're Chinese, if you're German, you signed on to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and one of your responsibilities is to help to create a human rights culture all around the world. And that includes in, in, inside the most powerful country in the world, the United right. States. So uh, that's part of what Malcolm's vision was about. His, his vision was... You know, in the United States, we are a minority. The United States um, are, unfortunately, in terms of the power dynamics of the country, we don't have enough financial power or, um, you know, economic power to dictate terms to the nation at large on a power basis. Even if, from a moral perspective, we have a moral claim to what's just and fair in in terms of what's right in terms of racial relations, Mm -hmm. we don't have the power to force things that... Other people don't want to do. But if we have allies from around the world, if the Brazilians and the Palestinians and you know South Africans were to in some way provide support for us, especially Africans, especially people right. on the continent, then in theory, we could increase our power and engage in some sort of movement that can force change as opposed to begging for change. Gotcha. So, you know, th- so that's part of Malcolm's vision. How can we help to create a connection between our people in the United States and our people in Brazil and our people in Canada and our people in South Africa? And this is part of the process of creating that connection. <laughs>